Hi everyone, I'm Carol Wang. Welcome to a special season of Health 101. We're focusing these episodes on what the COVID-19 pandemic has wrought to our health emotionally, physically, and mentally. And while we're addressing the effects this has had on physicians and their healthcare colleagues, we know these themes are universal. So if you recognize yourself or someone you love in our conversations, we urge you to seek help for yourself or for them. I'll have more resources at the end of the show. And a quick note of gratitude to the Copic Foundation for making this version of Health 101 possible. So if it's not an obsession, it certainly is a national pastime, or we are certainly just kind of thoughtful about it. We're all very consumed with the idea of sleep. How much are we getting? How much do we need? Is it good sleep? I mean, you know, the, the numbers that fall into everyone's heads, whether they're wearing an, you know, an Apple watch that tells them how much or a Fitbit or whether or not they've got the sleep number. I mean, there's just a million things that tell you. And in the age of COVID, all of that seems to have ratcheted up a bit more. So it's even more hyper sensitized. So we are going to delve into the science of sleeping soundly. And today I have Dr. Stephen Wangle and Dr. Devin Fox. Steve Wangle is a psychiatrist. Devin Fox is an internist. And so we're going to start the conversation with Devin talking about the importance of sleep and what does it really mean to sleep well? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, in my conversations over the years with patients, I guess... I think the easiest way to answer that is if you wake up and you feel refreshed. Um, can you start your day and feel like you got adequate sleep and, and you're alert and ready to take on the day? Um, and if not, is it a pattern? Is it something that happens frequently? Is it um, happening more often? And then start to, to drill into why that's the case. We are, as a whole, probably sleep deprived as normal. I mean, I'm assuming because you say you should be able to wake up. I've heard people say you should be able to wake up up without an alarm. I don't know. You know, I'm like, (laughs) where's the snooze button and how many snoozes can I get away with? Um, Or the, I wake up, but I'm not human until two cups of coffee are in me full of caffeine. So tell me how to differentiate between your definition and all the sleep aids that now I've just talked about. Absolutely. You know, I, um, the way you framed that, it makes me kind of think how we enter the world of sleep in the first place. Um, what are we doing to get there? Um, are we going to bed at a reasonable time? Are we setting ourselves up for success when it's time to go to bed? Um, uh, over the years, lots of conversations with people about, you know, <laughs> No TV in the bedroom. Um, These days, my gosh, you know, cell phones, Facebook, iPads, um, that light shining in your face right when you're trying to go to sleep does throw off your your cycle. And so to just be really diligent and deliberate and having people be aware of setting themselves up so that when they feel tired, they go to bed. And if they don't feel tired once they've gone to bed, um, the last thing that you want to do is lay there and struggle and fight it. Get back up, do something that's calming and um, can help you kind of slide into that world of tiredness and then try again. You know, that's how you kind of break those cycles before they can establish themselves. And then hopefully, as long as it's a a decent period of time, by the time it's time to wake up, you may be able to wake up without your alarm. But 
in the world that we're in nowadays, different than the world that we were in as we developed as humans, <laughs> we've got to go to work and we've got to do all those things. And so some people I find succeed with waking up without an alarm and some just never do. So then the question of, I know anxiety, depression, anything that's happening in your life shows up in your sleep. It's kind of the two go hand in hand. Um, what happens when you don't feel good in terms of mental health, in terms of um, everyone's been worried in the last year or so since the pandemic hit, uh, the level of stress. So how is it manifesting, Steve? Yeah, well, again, a great question and, uh, you know, something that's been on all of our minds. Uh, so as a psychiatrist, I, I, we consider um, psychiatrists and other mental health providers consider sleep a vital sign. You know, just like blood pressure, uh, temperature, and pulse and all that, those are important. But, you know, it's a vital sign because virtually every psychiatric condition I can think of um, can be affected by uh, or can affect your sleep. You know, depression, certainly, bipolar disorder, anxiety, substance use disorders, you name it. And as you say, this year, uh, or this last whatever, however many months, it's been over a year uh, of fighting the pandemic has affected all of us in different ways psychologically. But sleep is probably one of the main ways. I think early in the in the course of this, uh, this grand um, kind of psychosocial experiment we call COVID-19, people were talking about uh, corona somnia, right, or COVID somnia that uh, either trouble sleeping um, and or um, vivid dreaming. That's the other thing I, I see a lot in myself, my fellow physician and other healthcare worker colleagues, but also my patients. Not necessarily nightmares, but like vivid dreaming, which apparently is kind of like a, a symptom of stress, of just sort of systemic stress, I guess. I, don't, I can't explain it physiologically, but it's real common. And as again, I've, I'm certainly noticing it even in myself. So lots of, so long-winded answer, but yeah, lots of effects here. So then we take what is a specific time period, specific factors like COVID, but it's gone so long and it's kind of the fight or flight has been going on for so long. Is there a concern that we go into chronic sleep disorders? you know, that we make that jump because your system has been so ratcheted up? I, I mean, possibly. I, I don't think that sleep disorders um, necessarily uh, exist at a whole lot higher level now than they did before. Um, I think probably half of the people that I'd see would have some element of a question about good sleep and maybe having some difficulty with it. Um, coming out of the pandemic, I think we certainly could see um, readjustment, in particular to going back to the workplace and things like that. Um, people are going to have to get up a little earlier and their their schedules are altered. And I think that relates a lot to the many people who did work from home, how they set themselves up there. You know, did they end up working an hour or two here and there over the day from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m.? Or were they diligent about making sure that they still operated their, in their job within a certain defined parameter, just like as if they were going to work. So, so many variables there, you know, um, but I guess, uh, I guess we'll see. Um, but there's still, you know, there's, there's things that we can do to help people um, as they readjust. Talk about the fear. If you're talking about the vital sign of sleep, when you're talking to your patients or 
even more importantly these days when you're talking to your physicians and other healthcare workers who I think are really um, have been pounded by <laughs> the work pressures, life pressures, you know, and every front it has confronted them and affected their lives in profound ways. Is is there chronic psychiatric issues that we think are going to come and is that sleep going to be, you know, tied yeah. together inextricably? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, I think, right now. Uh, nobody knows, you know, because we just haven't been through something like this, uh, at least in our lifetime. The The chatter that I'm seeing, you know, kind of in the mental health uh, arena is that there is an expectation that there will be s- some folks, at least, that have some kind of chronic something or other. It may not be full-blown PTSD, but it's something, you know, just because, as you say, the chronic nature of this thing, you know, 15 months and counting now, uh, what does that do to your amygdala and other parts of the brain? What does that do? And your cortisol levels have probably been elevated for all of us, you know, to some degree or another for over a year. You know, uh, we're resilient as a species. We will adapt, but what's that going to look like? And how long is it going to take? We don't know. Um, you know, I, I hope that we will adapt, but it isn't going to be, you know, even if we reach herd immunity, which we, we're, you know, we're heading toward, but we're not there yet, certainly in this country. And of course, as we know, there's lots and lots of uh, parts of the world where there are still uh, tragic um, numbers of, of uh, COVID cases. So we're not out of the woods yet. But even once that happens, um, you know, it'll, it's not like we're going to flip a light switch and we're all going to go back to normal in terms of our psychological health. I think it's, it's going to take some time. Um, but again, I remain hopeful. I think we've been through tough stuff before and we'll get through it. But uh, again, we don't really know what that's going to look like or how do we best, you know, manage that. And so when someone comes to you, whether it's a doctor or a patient, and you ask them about their sleep, what tips you off that it's not okay? Yeah. And that, you know, what a, what is it that they say to you that you go, yeah, that's, yeah, this is, this is COVID related and this will pass or eh, we're gonna, you know, we've now veered into something more severe. Yeah. Well, again, a, a great question. And I think uh, that's, it seems like a big chunk of what I do now in my job. So I spend half my time seeing older adults. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, but half the other half doing wellness related things for my institution. And, you know, and this crosses both of those those things, you know, either with my patients, the one-on-one patient encounters I have, or with talking to other healthcare providers. So I think the first thing I try to do is normalize stuff that really is normal, because when you think you're the only one suffering this, and you think you're, uh, you know, gee, I'm dreaming all the time, or I'm having a little more trouble falling asleep than I used to, or I'm waking up a little earlier than I used to chronically, but I still am feel like I'm kind of getting enough sleep and getting through the day. I normalize those things because I think we're all doing that, or maybe not all, but many, many, many of us are. And so sometimes when you normalize something and say, no, you're not the only one, you're the 10th person I've talked to in a week with that, uh, it takes away a little bit of the sting of that. Because as my colleague, Dr. Fox, was starting to say, you know, with sleep, if you expect you're not going to sleep well, guess what? You're not going to sleep well. There's a whole bunch of expectation kind of built into that. So if we can kind of normalize, say, yeah, just take a breath, ride the wave. You know, we're all kind of adjusting. And one of the things we're all adjusting to is dreaming more, or maybe having a little bit of trouble with sleep onset. But, you know, you follow the rules, like uh, Dr. Fox was saying about going to bed when you're tired and whatever, you know, you kind of... Uh, Go back to basics. I mean, I think that's the other thing. That's the other thing I've learned, I think, during the pandemic or maybe relearned is that 
a lot of this is not rocket science. It really is back to basics. We forget. When we're under stress, we forget the basics. You know, get some exercise. Shut off your screens before bedtime and so forth. You know, back to the basics. And so I found myself reminding people of real simple, basic stuff over and over again. And it seems like it almost comes across as new information to people. There was actually, again, this is a geeky uh, thing, but uh, a lot of the stuff I say is kind of geeky. But it reminded me, there was a, uh, a phrase, Dr. Samuel Johnson, who was, you know, this literary guy back in the, I don't know, 18th or 17th century. Apparently, he, he had a quote of something like, people need reminding more than they need instructing, something like that. But I, that's really become kind of my mantra, you know. Right. Uh, get some exercise, do, you know, whatever, do, pull yourself away from all those screens an hour before, you know, those kind of things. Well, and I think, you guys both talk about screens and that blue light and the phone um, because it is it was already so invasive in our lives before, but now when you've spent a year plus in your home in the four walls of this <laughs> place um, that you know you've not really left, and those things have been in some ways your only connection to the outside world in a lot of ways, um, that really has changed how much blue light i imagine we've all taken mm. in a tremendous amount more of blue light uh, or you know between <laughs> zoom yeah. yeah and and just yeah. and how much netflix binging people have done or yeah. what you know whatever their life has looked like during the pandemic it has all involved some sort of device mm-hmm. well and i think we're fortunate that we're kind of coming out of this optimist optimistically speaking as dr wingle pointed out we think we're on the right track but um, we're paying attention to other parts of the world very closely but here in the midwest it's spring and so take advantage of the ability to get outside and be outdoors and kind of reset and get some sun and and shut shut off um be active you know i think that's another thing um i didn't mention earlier but about go to bed when you're tired there's things you can do to facilitate facilitate getting tired, get some exercise, you know, go go for a nice walk after dinner and things like that too. You guys know better than anyone else about sleep deprivation only because if you are a doctor who trained in the United States, you've rounded and you've been on call for 24 hours and you've you know slept in the physician's lounge or wherever those beds are. Um, so then long-term effects of sleep deprivation because I think – People probably have some, and you know, and there are days where I feel like, oh, I could sleep for twenty four hours. I mean, I think about when I was in college, and you stayed up all night and you wrote the paper, and you just felt horrible yeah. the whole day that you, you know, turned the paper in, and you felt nauseous most of the day. I think, um, <laughs> you know, and so I think about what's the long term symptoms of some sleep deprivation problems that we need to think about for people who have, you know done four hours here, three hours here, who have kind of had to make it work for their families and their lives? Yeah, well, for sure. And uh, just so you know, back to healthcare (laughs) workers, especially physicians, I can't speak so much to nurses and others, but certainly as physicians, I think uh, my colleague would agree that sleep deprivation is kind of a badge of honor among physicians. We sort of do the humble brag, like, you know, (laughs) I have on call all weekend, got two hours of sleep, you know, da-da-da-da-da, we kind of do that. And I've got physician colleagues that even when they're not on call, they will... Uh, sort of brag about how little sleep they can get by with, which I always worry about them a little bit because I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for our brains. You know, when you think about it, 
you know, if we spend seven or eight hours, uh, uh, seven to nine, I guess, is the usual recommendation for adults, I guess, right? But something like that, eight hours, a third of our time asleep, if we are doing it right, uh, why? You know, there's got to be a good reason, because that's a third of our lives, right? You know, and people have asked that question for a long time. What purpose does it serve in addition to resting our muscles and resting our brain? Maybe. I'm not sure the brain really rests that much, though, when we're sleeping, right? Because of REM sleep and dreaming and all that. So I think we're. I think it's still a bit of a mystery why we sleep, but I think answering that question will help answer your question. A couple things we do know, or one thing in particular, um, the glymphatic system. I've learned a little bit about that lately, and most people haven't heard of that. So a lot of people have heard the term lymphatic system, a drainage system for the body, but apparently the brain, according to the science, the basic scientists, the brain doesn't have a lymphatic drainage system. So instead, uh, you know, this this principle came out or this theory came out a few years ago by the, you know, again, basic scientists saying that the brain has a thing called the glymphatic system. That's a made-up word using the word glia and lymphatic. And basically it's a drainage system that works predominantly when we sleep. And maybe, I don't know, 100% when we sleep, but mostly when we sleep. It's kind of like that's when the brain takes out the trash is when you sleep, apparently. And that's when we get rid of toxic things like amyloid protein and amyloid is not a household word among you know most people, but amyloid is is a form of protein that accumulates in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And we don't know if it's a cause of Alzheimer's or the effect of having the disease Alzheimer's, but all we know is it's bad. Uh, amyloid protein is bad for the brain. We probably all accumulate a certain amount of that just by virtue of having active brains that metabolize a lot of stuff, and they make you know they you know anytime you have active cells, they have waste products, and amyloid may be a waste product for all we know. But the only time you apparently get rid of is when you're sleeping. So, so, so all of which is a long-winded way of saying that chronic sleep deprivation is now being recognized as a risk factor, one of many risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Now, having said that, having dropped that bombshell, I don't want, you know, if you're sleep deprived, I'm not saying you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. Most people don't. Lots of people are sleep deprived. Most people don't get Alzheimer's disease. So I don't want you to worry about that. But on the other hand, it's maybe a wake-up call that if you have chronic sleep problems, it might be something to address because it probably, it may have some some other health implications we haven't figured out just yet. Mm -hmm. I'd say um, more acutely speaking, you know, certainly irritability and uh, mood liability and There are physiologic things. Um, high blood pressure probably is mm. correlated with, with worse sleep and things like that, too. So just like you pointed out in college, just generally not feeling like you should, not feeling well. And uh, obviously that can impact your, your overall health and your relationships with others. Which is also at a frayed point <laughs> if yeah. you've lived wow. in your bubble with, you know, your family and you've seen them for, you know, 365 plus, you know, half a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been the only people you have seen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on the flip side because there is sleep deprivation. And then is there such a thing as too much sleep? Because I've heard some people say if you're depressed, you sleep a lot more. So... When do you know you're sleeping too much? I'm curious what Steve has to say about this. Yeah. I saw the question, but I, you know, <laughs> I, I was kind of th- yeah. reflecting on that uh, in the list of questions, and I was um, thinking back that too much sleep probably to me would be a symptom of something else rather mm-hmm. than uh, other than yeah. if they're saying over the weekend they slept too much, then they're probably catching up from the week prior. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think you're right. I think it is. I think I think he said it 
very well and very succinctly. So yeah, certainly pe some people with depression, yeah, either it's really interesting. Sleep can go either way with severe depression, either not sleeping well at all, especially waking up too early, like three, four in the morning and just being unable to get back to sleep. That's kind of by definition, almost kind of a, one of the hallmark symptoms of depression. But on the other hand, this year, especially I've seen a lot of folks going the other way that sleeping a lot during the day. And I think it's kind of a distraction or not a distraction. It's, it's something to do. Mm -hmm. You know, people are bored. What about people living in assisted living, older adults living in assisted living or nursing homes where for the longest time they couldn't come out of their rooms. They couldn't have meals together with fellow residents. Obviously families couldn't visit for a long, long time. Really tough. You know, solitary confinement is what a lot of my patients call it, you know? So what do you do? Well, you can only watch so much TV. You can only only read so many books, you know, and so they slept a lot during the day. So I think that's another consequence here of the pandemic, kind of a, a, a way of dealing with boredom. Is it okay? It's, pro you know, probably doesn't, I mean, it's not great to be laying around more because, again, we're built to be active, certainly, you know, we're made to move. And so that's, but, you know, in the long run, it may be, it, it again, it's one of those things we'll adapt to. I, I don't know that there are long-term consequences of too much sleep. Know, but other than again, you're—it's not real good for your physical health and your overall conditioning. I would say. Yeah, and I mean that's got to be a major focus right now, and is in places like assisted yeah. livings and things where things are starting to loosen up a little bit. Is getting those people out and yeah. moving, and I've seen it firsthand. Um, once you start to see people emerge from the cave, the mm -hmm. the joy in their faces, mm -hmm. and and when they can interact and even maybe hug. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's. Really, in my career, I can't really equate it to anything like I've seen before. Um, mm. It's it's very gratifying mm -hmm. to to observe that. But yeah. but that's the thing they need to get out and get moving and get their get muscle tone back. <laughs> I almost think on the on that same thought is I wonder if some of the healthcare frontline workers who have been on those COVID units for months who have not taken vacations or time off because it's just been this overwhelming yeah. adrenaline, you know, fueled that, that a, they probably have, you know, the sleep debt, dep you know, that is if you don't get enough during the week and you're trying to make it up that kind of uh, mathematical equation, it's, they probably have an overwhelming amount of sleep, sleep debt, but, do I wonder if some of them are going to oversleep because mm. there's the depression factor coming out? Because we're watching all of mm -hmm. them as the ones who probably have the hardest reaction we still don't know about. Right, right. And, yeah, what does that reentry look like? I Again, we're, we're making this up as we go along, you know. Uh, we, we don't know. Um, again, people are adaptable. They will adapt, but... But, well, here's the other thing, too. What does normal look like going forward? You know, people talk about the new normal or the, yeah, the new normal is to come, a phrase that's been around for a while. Some people are saying maybe that's not even the right phrase. Maybe we need to say the next normal because there may be a series of normals <laughs> that happen as we adapt as a society. You know, think of all the economic changes, uh, just one thing after another. I mean, this is, like say, there's been this enormous sociological as, as well as medical, um, you know, phenomenon. So. Another thing that's going to be interesting, you know, I, we both probably know a lot of peers who've made major career changes they may not have mm -hmm. made were it not for the pandemic. I know a lot of people who have um, been in that frontline thing and decided that it was either time to retire or do something a little bit more, just outpatient and things like that. So yeah. to, to pay attention, I think it's probably obvious that they may have a different outcome, but maybe not. You know, it'll, maybe they made that change because they were at a higher breaking point than others. I don't know. But yeah. 
um, certainly know a lot of people who, who the pandemic pushed them in one yeah. direction or another. Yeah, for sure. Well, I feel like we have to be really sensitive to each other and your, you know, you talk about sleep and people who are much more irritable and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot more irritability mm. out there. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm not yes. sure if it's because they didn't sleep enough <laughs> or they're not caffeinated yeah. enough or they're just <laughs> tired at yeah. this point, you know, yeah. sick and tired and, and burned out a bit. <laughs> there's, just, there's also yeah. just so much going on in the world right now as we evolve as a society. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's yeah. as much uh, a source of that yeah. as anything. I'm surprised True. we don't have nightmares. I really Yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I've heard more people tell me they're taking a Tylenol PM to go to sleep, that they're, you know, and, and obviously we've heard the stories of Ambien and, and some of the interesting effects that some of it has. Um, does that really help? Should you be using some of those sleep aids? And, and if you do have a short-term versus long-term problem, you know, is, does that get you through a week or does that get you through a year? Mm. Uh, maybe I'll tee this up and then you can correct my <laughs> thinking. No, no. <laughs> I, what I've counseled over the years is, I, I, I mean, I never was a fan of uh, benzos or other mm-hmm. things, substances that people can become addicted to or tolerant of um, and kind of commented that there's things like Benadryl that for a very short time you might use to simply reset. But, um, you know, hopefully working through those good sleep hygiene issues will will get someone uh, on the road to improvement. Um, I'm curious what Steve thinks of things like melatonin and things like that as well. But um, my, my, Mantra was always to avoid those things because sometimes you have someone come see you as a new patient and they've been on these drugs forever and there's no getting them off, at least not too easily. Yeah, so I completely agree. It's really tough that people at least have a psychological kind of dependence often on them, whether it's or maybe sometimes physical too, but a lot of times kind of psychologically really used to taking that thing, whatever that thing is. And uh, I would say in my field in psychiatry, we, it's, it reminds me a little of the opioid situation for, you know, psychiatrists generally don't prescribe opioids, but I know you do, you're, you know, internists and family physicians and other adult uh, providers do. And I know a lot of emphasis on not doing that for chronic conditions. Psychiatry is catching up with the benzodiazepines that I think it's, that's our opioid thing that we've kind of probably used them too liberally. Again, in my 30 year career, I think it was, you know, we didn't really see them as particularly uh, bad things to prescribe, uh, you know, chronically in the, back when I started training, but now where there's much more emphasis on not starting people on something that you might, they might have trouble stopping, whether it's for anxiety or for sleep or whatever. So I completely agree, you know, trying to avoid benzos and, and other, and the Z drugs and things like that for chronic conditions. I mean, they're really intended for short-term things, right? You know, you're having trouble sleeping after some event, you know, you're grieving or some other major life change. So a few weeks maybe of use, but that's the problem. People get used to them and a few weeks turns into a few months, turns into a few years. Back to your question on melatonin, I, I, I'm a believer. I've got a lot of patients that take it. And again, whether it's really having a physical or physiological effect or more psychological, I don't know, but it seems to be well tolerated and, uh, uh, you know, for some people seems pretty effective. Um, you know, one problem we know, of course, in this country is the FDA doesn't test uh, non-prescription 
things, unlike other countries uh, like in Europe where they actually test, you know, herbal products and non-prescription uh, drugs. But we don't do that. So you don't really know what you're getting. That's the downside. Um, but having said all that, I think melatonin is a reasonable thing for folks that want to take something. Mm-hmm. Having said that, in the long run, I think better options, you, you mentioned sleep hygiene a number of times. I, I really push that more and more. And, you know, there's some phone apps that are pretty helpful. Uh, the VA, the Veterans Administration, has put out three new phone apps that anybody can get. You don't have to be a veteran, and they're free, and they're really good. One's called COVID Coach, and it actually has some sleep deprivation and some anxiety stuff in it. Uh, but they even have one specifically called Insomnia Coach. So again, it's free on the app store of either either type of phone, uh, and it really is good. It really uses scientific principles to deal with uh, chronic insomnia or acute insomnia, for that matter. So it's it's hard to get people to do it because they want the quick fix. Of course, Americans want the quick fix. Give me a pill, and you know that'll treat my fill in the blank, whatever condition. And, of course, and again, it's all wrapped up in all kinds of direct to consumer advertising, which we didn't used to have, you know, when I started out and all that. So Americans have been conditioned, you know, there's a pill for every, everything. Um, and they don't like the idea like, Oh, I'll have to do something. that's going to take a little longer, a little more effort on my part, but in the long run, sleep hygiene and stuff like that works better. Right. Cause that's a six to eight week process in most cases. I mean, a lot of pills are a six to eight week as well to see full effect, but when you say, I need you to change your habits at nighttime, no. you know, I mean, what is a habit? Isn't it no. like two months or so to develop it as a something that you do automatically and it becomes a habitual thing? No, I think it depends on what the situation is. You know, if it's, if, if it's something that uh, is impairing their ability to get to sleep, whether it's habitual or not, I think it's still worth addressing. Um, and, you know, now we're in a world where we've got drugs that do the other side, too. And people are requesting prescriptions for the non-24 meds and all that oh, to yeah. keep them awake. And so, that and you know, that's a whole bunny trail that we can't go down <laughs> this morning. But, you know, we can, we're going to have tools um, in the world that we practice in more and more over time that can actually make things harder than easier. And so I think certainly having the the relationship with your patients to, to be able to have reasonable conversations around why maybe those things aren't the best idea, except for in very certain circumstances, like was mentioned, you know, acute grieving, acute things like that to get people reset is maybe a term that I've used. I've also been reading a little bit more about our natural sleep cycles because there are naturally morning people. There are night owls and circadian rhythms sometimes tell you, you know, and, and I think New York Times, I think, had an article about if you wanted to subtly shift from one to the other and how you start doing it incrementally. Um, I think there's a lot of questions about can you alter your circadian rhythm and can you, um, and, or in the remote world that we have lived in, if you found that you worked from 1 to 10 p.m. because you were a night owl and that got you, um, when you start going to the next normal and you have to readjust to a nine to five type of thing. Is that like doing your sleep habit? Uh, You know, I, to the first part of your question, I tend to think that we can adjust those and that's just based on travel around the world. If you go halfway around the world, you spend a couple days there and you've shifted. Um, You, you may or may not be a morning person when you're in, uh, you know, France compared to in the, the States or something like that, eventually that may not change. But I think you can shift it. Um, I don't know about the nature of people. I think that's more about what makes them happy. 
Um, I, I like to get up in the morning and read and have coffee on the deck on a nice day. Some other people could care less about that. Yeah, yeah very true, very true. All, all individuals and all different that way. Um, so you think we're just going to – yeah, and I think – I just think sleep is just going to be this thing because I think, you know, we've always thought about sleep is a thing that we count in hours. Um, and, and is it just an hour thing that you're counting? Because as you said, if you're vividly dreaming, is that still good sleep? I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I, I, yes, I don't know either. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that makes me think though, just as sort of an, a, an aside, you know, some other cultures, you know, they go home some in some parts of Latin America, right? It's not like, like the American thing of, you know, six or seven or eight or nine hours or whatever at night, you know, probably more towards the lower end of that. But what, what would be our natural cycle if we really didn't worry about the clock and worry about getting up to go to work and all that? Would we would sleep be sort of broken up? And we have the siesta or whatever in the afternoon, for example, which some cultures have, you know, kind of evolved to. Is that is that better for us? I don't know. You know? And and paying attention to the to the hour problem question, um, as as we know, over time the number of hours that we technically need to sleep theoretically from day to day goes down, and so the, there's a lot of Older people who are concerned because they don't sleep eight hours, and then they definitely napping becomes a little bit more of a thing when you're yeah. retired. You can yeah. do that in the afternoon and things, but that was always a, a topic that that came up commonly was to say you may only need five or six hours of sleep, um, and that's that's a hard thing to kind of wrap your brain around when you're yeah. used to sleeping eight. Yes, and it comes back to that normalizing thing. You know, it's kind of nice. It's it's something that. It's fun to do as a physician. We, you know, we unfortunately have to do so much talk about pathology where we diagnose something, but it's kind of nice to be able to say, you know, that's actually pretty normal. That's actually pretty normal. So tell me what gets each of you your best night's sleep. Is there something you guys do either ritually or something you guys utilize that, um, you know, whether it's a sleep app, whether it's meditation or something that you find that if you take that time to do, you usually get a good night's sleep as a routine? Well, uh, you know, for me, it's exercise and, and meditation. I started doing, you know, 10 to 20 minutes of meditation at night, usually right before bed a number of years ago. And, and even though I preach this stuff to people, I don't do it as regularly as I ought to. And it's kind of the typical thing. You feel like, you know, I feel pretty calm tonight. I'm not going to do it. And, you know, just go to bed a little sooner. And then I usually don't sleep as well. But for me, that 10 or 20 minutes of winding down, kind of slow breathing, trying to clear my head of the debris of the day really makes a difference. And when I do that regularly, I sleep a whole lot better. But again, as I say, I'm preaching it, but I'm not always practicing it as much as I could. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm, I'm blessed. I haven't typically struggled in life with sleep problems, but um, what I will say, one thing I, identify, I identified for sure over time was uh, minimizing caffeine after, mm -hmm. say, dinner time. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, from personal experience to some extent. And, you know, there's other things that may be specific to the individual as well. For example, men who find themselves over the years getting up to empty their bladder at night that they didn't used to have to do mm -hmm. and then trouble getting back to sleep. You know, a simple thing is if it's healthy and safe for them to do so, maybe cut out liquids after dinner, you know, so then they don't have a, and, and empty their bladder before bed. So, you know, there's also going to be specific things to the individual that are going to provide them success too. But for me, it's mostly just no caffeine. And, you know, if, if there happens to be a social occasion and I have a couple of drinks that almost always 
leads me to wake up in the middle of the night or something like that too. So we know alcohol has some impairment as well of our sleep. Yeah, which is kind of kind of counterintuitive, right? Because it makes you tired, tired. makes you drowsy, <laughs> makes you relaxed. And so I think a lot of people, I think that, I don't know that I've seen data on this, but I think during the pandemic, a lot of folks are drinking more, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe turning to recreational drugs more to deal with the stress. And it is a funky thing with met, with alcohol specifically, right? It makes you tired initially, but then it tends to disrupt the last half of your sleep cycle a fair amount. Can I ask a quick question about smell? Because, hmm. you know, I hear people use lavender spray. I hear people burn a candle in order to set the stage for sleep. And any thoughts on that? Again, you know, limited scientific data, but a lot of folks find that helpful. And, uh, and for some reason, lavender does seem to be the thing that comes back over and over again. A little, again, sort of a tangent, but again, as a geriatric psychiatrist, I've, I sometimes will see things pop up in the literature where, like, um, somebody will do a study of, fe- of people with Alzheimer's disease that get kind of agitated and wound up, and, that, you know, people living in nursing homes, and, this, and they found that, like, um, when nurses and other technician, you know, care techs will like rub lavender oil on their arms, it actually relaxes them. And it's, and they've tried like unscented massage oil and it's good, but not as good. So there's something about it. It's the touch plus maybe the olfactory stimulation too, that maybe, maybe some, in fact, I think there actually, now that I think of it, I think there's an over the counter supplement you can get that has lavender in it where you can actually ingest it. Again, not, hasn't been tested, so I don't, not, not recommending it necessarily, but there's, there may be something to that. And probably certainly safe to try. That's the other thing over uh, in conversations with people. It often comes up is, should I try this? And my two rules were always, as long as it doesn't break the bank, you can afford Mm -hmm. to try it. And it's safe with whatever else is in your medical (laughs) milieu. So, Well, I certainly hope the conversation helps people get some good seeds after this and be thoughtful about how important sleep is in their lives and whatever whatever else is going on that that's the one area they really do need to pay attention to thanks guys thank you thank you it was fun if you or someone you care about needs immediate help please call the national suicide prevention lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 That's 1-800-273-TALK. We also have more resources on our website, omahamedical.com, including an online assessment and options to access care for physicians in the region. A Huda Media Production.